0: morning reading this morning comes from psalm chapter 6 uh, psalm is one of my favorite books to find in the bible if you flip to the middle if you find yourself in job turn to the right if you find yourself not in job turn to the left uh, psalm chapter 6 O lord rebuke me in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. in Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed. And greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, Emmanuel, we stand before you, uh, broken people, keenly aware of our own sin and guilt, in desperate need of you, our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. You know the depths of our sin, and we all deserve for you to rebuke us in your anger and discipline us in your wrath instead father you sent your one and only son to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death you chose to pour out your anger and wrath on Jesus the perfect sacrifice so you would not pour it out on me on us on deserving sinners who are we that you would be mindful of us we have nothing to offer. So we give you our life. We stand with confidence, Father. You are our living hope in both life and death. You hear our plea and accept our prayer. So, Lord, we ask you now to open our hearts to hear, open our ears to hear, open our our hearts, bend them towards you, Father, and open our eyes to see. Lord, we pray that you'll be with Cody in these next minutes. Amen.
1: I suspect this morning that if we all paused uh, and had some means by which we could find what is a universal situation, circumstance in every one of our lives, uh, we're going to struggle to find that which is something in everybody's life. We're all very uniquely different, different backgrounds, uh, different ages, uh, different vocations, different giftings. Uh, and this is where the Psalms help us immensely. Because I think the one universal thing everyone here has is that we, because it's that which has come from the fall of man into sin, which is we're all under affliction in some way, shape, or form. Uh, some here have cancer. Uh, some may be persecuted or under affliction in a relationship, in a job situation, we all have these in some way, shape, or form, times or going through, uh, maybe more intense at times than others, affliction. And the Psalms so beautifully help us to know how, as believers, we can find our hope in the midst of all of this. We present before you. I present before you this morning. Psalm six. The word is is here for us. It is, if you will, uh, the the answer to those in in Christ and where we find the deliverance from our affliction. Uh, we find it in God. That's why you're here this morning, I presume. Uh, that's the difference, if you will, for those in Christ and those who are not is. You have found your hope in Christ and in God from your affliction and everyone else that does not do that is working this morning at the moment to try to find some means of deliverance from their affliction another way. And yet we have, by His grace, we've sung about it this morning, we've read about it this morning and now we'll hear from His word this morning that yes, our affliction is carried ultimately by Christ and that we are and being delivered and will ultimately be delivered because of the work of God for us. I greatly enjoyed our study of the Psalms last summer. I hope you did as well. I thought it would be helpful for us as we jump into this summer series now, beginning with Psalm six, to just pause a bit and think through a little bit of how the Psalms are organized. It may be helpful for you if you weren't here last year or like me, forgot of our, about our study and some of the nuances and how the psalms are put together. There's three things that I would offer to you as you think about the psalms this summer that may help us in how to properly interpret them. Uh, they can be difficult at times. This is Hebrew poetry. It, it doesn't work like English poetry. It doesn't rhyme like the way we think of it. It's phrased differently. It's the, the pictures are placed differently for us. So let me offer to you a few things that may be helpful for you. One is that the Psalms are actually not one book. It's it's five, five books uh, all together in one. Or you could maybe say it as one book with five specific chapters. Uh, we're in chapter one, if you want to think about it that way, which is book one, which is Psalm one through forty one. Book two is 42 through 72, book three, 73 through 89, Four, ninety through 106, and book five, 107 through 150. And each book, if you think about them in that specific way, has an individual theme to it. Robert Godfrey has done some excellent work in this, and he suggests, and I would agree with him and offer to you this morning, that the theme of book one is the king's confidence in God's care. The king's confidence in God's care. Each of these books, each of these psalms, ultimately deal with the individual as well as the community of faith. So in Psalm 1, for instance, we see blessed is the man. Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Another help may be, as I said at the beginning, that these are Hebrew poetry. So we're going to look for things like repetition. We're going to look for things like word pictures. If we went over to uh, Psalm chapter uh, 21, we won't, but we could go there. And the way Hebrew poetry works is that the the emphasis, if you will, is in the center. Uh, we could just look at Psalm 6. You might look down and recognize 10 verses. And, and really the, the point, if you will, the emphasis, the turning point for the psalmist is in verse 4 and 5. Now the verses are, are man-made, but it's in the center. It's clear there. The steadfast love of God. Another help. You might think of the fact that oftentimes we read these psalms as individual things. But that's not the way we read any other book of the Bible. Uh, You're not going to go to Acts chapter 7 and ignore Acts 6 and 8. But I don't know about you, as I read through the psalms, I never think about, well, let's think about how 5 helps us understand 6 or how 7 helps us understand 6. We just think of 6. But it actually does work. Read the psalm before, read the psalm after, and you're going to find there's a flow of thought. We'll see it even here, this morning in chapter five, and what happens in chapter six flowing into chapter seven. Now, with that in mind, let's look at let's look at six. And you've got probably uh, some words at the top of your passage there, maybe some. The effect of, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's Hebrew. First thing you need to know is it's a song. I think it's going to be helpful for us that we're actually going to sing this afterward. So this is a prayer, certainly. We can find that there, but it's also a psalm, a song. It, it, it was written to be sung. And then if you, if you take this word it, it in Hebrew it actually means according to a lower octave, meaning David writes this to be sung for low men's voices. Why? Well, I, I was just struck by the thought this morning that sounds communicate things to us, do they not? What a wonder that God has created sound and that communication we receive from sound. So if you were to go to some majestic mountains, you get a particular communication when you hear your echo, 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 echo. You get this sense of majesty and awe communicated to you. You don't get the same sense of majesty and awe when you whisper to a sleeping infant. You, you get something entirely different. You get something of innocence and of beauty. What about exaltation? You get that when you hear Handel's Messiah and the way that the women uh, sing uh, the hallelujahs and it gets higher and higher and higher. And you get this thought of great grandeur and exaltation. What do deep notes bring? Well, one of the things that they carry is a communication of sorrow. You, you can't get sorrow with high notes in that same way. Deeper sounds carry that. And, and there's this thought here that David is, is not only writing this with affliction on his heart and mind, but he's actually wanting to communicate that and the way he's, he's making it sound. The Afflicted Find Deliverance in God. That is what I would offer to you as the theme of this passage. And the way I've divided it up is we're going to take a look at the first three verses, the next four, four through seven, and then the final three, eight through ten. I've entitled the first section here, The Prayer of the Afflicted. The Prayer of the Afflicted. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? If nothing else, we can see right from the beginning that the Bible does the best job of describing the actual burden of the afflicted. How do you put it into words? The psalmist has done an excellent job for us. Here's one of the word pictures, this this thought of languishing. Uh, think of a flower that's just that's just folding in on itself. It's just wilting. The heat, the lack of nourishment, it's just withering away. These these bones of his that he describes as 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 troubled. Spurgeon, I, I think, is the one who said it, that the bones may shake when the soul is firm. And yet what is happening here is not only are the bones shaking, the soul is shaking as well. Verse 3, the soul is greatly troubled. But notice in all of his pain what the psalmist is, is doing. He, he's not pleading his innocence. He's pleading the grace of God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. He doesn't approach God first with the thought of, why me? What about this? I didn't do anything, but be gracious to me. He ends this this section with a question that I think is a common question for all, which is, how long? Does this have to go on? How many more weeks do I have to go through this pain? How many more months do I have to endure this? Surely this has been long enough. How long? It is rare, brothers and sisters, that God ever answers that question for us. He doesn't need to. He simply provides the means of grace to walk as he directs us through it. You know, you're working out. It gets tough at the end of the workout. What do you do to get yourself through it? You probably look at the clock and say, well, I only got 30 more seconds. I can get through this. If he told you how much longer you would have, you wouldn't look to him. You, you would look to yourself and think, go, oh, I just kind of tone down here and get, get it done. No, he desires our attention. He desires our trust in him. The prayer of the afflicted is the way I've titled this first section because this is one of the the first psalms of penance. There's seven of them in scripture. Psalm 6, 31, 37, 50, 101, 129, and 142. It's psalms that throughout history the church has viewed as ways to express sorrow over sin and seeking forgiveness from God. But it's interesting when you think about Psalm 6 because there's no direct thought that this is an expression of sorrow over sin. We we aren't left as to what the sorrow actually is, what the affliction is. Is is his affliction from physical suffering? Well, he mentions that in verse 2. Is it from his enemies? He mentions that in verse 8. Is it due to his sin? Well, this is... How chapter seven helps us look at chapter seven, verse three. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, is that the reason for such affliction? The scriptures don't tell us. Maybe it's one of them. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's something that's not mentioned. Who's to say? But notice, irregardless of the reason for the affliction, the prayer of this king, King David, is to the king of kings from whom all blessings flow. He's the one to whom King David directs his prayer. He's being like Job, if you will. Loses his entire fortune, loses his children. What does he say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. David actually uh, used the, 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 ver- the words he uses in verse 1, he repeats in other ver- chapters as well. Psalm 38, verse 1 O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Psalm 118 verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastens all he desires. I, I, I'm, we're, we're, we should be struck by the discipline of God. Why should we be struck by the discipline of God? Well, because our entire culture, which, which has an influence on us every day, tells us that we should not have discipline with our children. We've sought to remove the parental discipline. We're not to tell our children no any longer. We must be their best friend. To tell them that their dream of being whatever they want to be may not be wise and they shouldn't go that route but go another one. That's unloving. Is all that's around us. And so when we read of the fatherly discipline of God in verse 1, it's going to probably have a difficulty in its understanding to us when we're told that discipline is bad so proverbs 13 verse 24 though describes for us what it is like to be outside the discipline of god proverbs 13:24 whoever spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him Parents, your love for your children will often be most expressed and one day most realized in times of discipline. For God to not discipline us is for God to hate us. Hebrews 12, he only disciplines his children. And if he doesn't discipline his children, he hates. There's no gray area there. Psalm 11 verse 5, his soul hates the wicked. Proverbs 15 verse 9, God hates their ways. Proverbs 15 verse 26, God hates their thoughts. Proverbs 15 verse 8, He hates their worship. Proverbs 6 verse 18, He hates their actions. Proverbs Psalm 5 verse 5, He hates their deeds. And yet He loves His children. Is God angry over our sin though we've been saved by Christ? is God angry over our sin though his eternal wrath once reserved for us is held back is God angry though his eternal wrath once reserved to us reserved for us was held back until judgment day to be released for all of eternity what, what, is he is he angry with us when he has taken all that eternal wrath and placed it upon Christ is God angry over our sin yes he is he's angry over our sin. Thus the plea of the psalmist. No one can stand before the anger of God. We don't like to think of the fact that though in Christ, though all the eternal wrath of God has been placed on Christ, though we'll never bear out the eternal wrath of God, that God still might be angry with our sin. But if God is not angry with our sin, he can't be perfect. He'd have to abide in perfection. That doesn't mean that his anger is manifested toward us. No, it was taken entirely by Christ. But he's still angry over our sin. The illustration that came to mind would be this. Uh, My son's in t-ball right now. And guess what's dominating the home at the current time? It's baseball and t-ball. Imagine, if you will, the baseball player who desires to be be the, the best hitter ever. He spends thousands of hours honing his craft. He starts with the foot placement, just how the right angle needs to be with his plant foot to turn right, to push the right amount of power, the angle, all of these things, right? Works up his knees where they need to be, how much power he needs, how much weight he needs to lift in order to get his hips right around, get his hands, all these different things. If you followed baseball, you appreciate these things. If you don't, you're probably clueless to what I'm saying. All that it say is he's devoted to his craft, right? He works tirelessly to build the right muscles to get the correct hip drive. He spends hours late at night watching film of every pitcher in the game. He's a right-handed hitter like no other, and he comes to you as the coach, and he says, coach, listen, I've done all this work for 20 plus years here, and I'm still having a difficult time hitting. You as the coach would say, well, get get in your stance and show me what you see. And, And he stands up, and he puts his left hand over his right as a right-handed batter. Well, if you've ever swung a bat, you know it's impossible, almost impossible to do that. It's right over left, not left over right. Well, what would you tell him? I got the key. Put your right over your left and you'll hit the ball every time. You tell him that, what do you think he would do? Oh, no. No, listen, look. I can be perfect and still imbide one piece of imperfection. Listen, I got my toes right, my knees, my hips, my shoulders, my eyes been trained. Who really cares if the left over right or right over left? It's absurd. He couldn't be a perfect hitter unless he switched. God cannot abide imperfection and still be perfect. He does hate our sin. And in fact, when we recognize his perfection, when we behold our God, as we've sung this morning, the, the proper response is, O oh Lord, do not discipline me in your anger. Brothers and sisters, may our prayer to the Lord be often, rebuke me not in your anger, nor in wrath address my soul, but O oh Lord, discipline me as the one whom you love, because otherwise I'm in your hate. And I desire only to be that which is in your love and he will do he does so lovingly do this it is the prayer of the afflicted it is ultimately the prayer of the believer but let's look at verse 4 through 7 and i've entitled this the plea and pain of the afflicted and you can see there as i mentioned earlier that a bit of the turning point in the psalm it's found in verse 4 the plea of the psalmist Is the ground for every believer's plea, and it's a ground that is, that is so solid, that is never, never able to be moved. It's the steadfast love of God. We don't, we don't get the, the significance of the psalmist David dropping in steadfast love the way a Hebrew first reading this would have gained that significance. There is one or two verses that if you want to plant your feet in the Old Testament and you want to plant your feet on one or two verses and and see those two verses as the entirety of how the Hebrew nation would have viewed God, you should go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. Those are the two verses by which the entire framework of the Hebrew in this time thinks and knows about God. Let me read them for you. We'll recognize them right away. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the children's generation to the third and fourth generation. On on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What the Hebrew people knew about God was this, that he was merciful, that he was gracious, that he was slow to anger, that he abounded in steadfast love, that he was faithful, that he kept steadfast love for thousands, that he forgave. And in the thousands of years, they saw God's hand manifested in that way over and over and over and over again. If you read the Old Testament with that as the as the tent upon it, you'll read it in a different way. Because then when you get to the New Testament, you'll read that same character of God manifested through Jesus Christ for us. Displayed in ways that the Old Testament never got to see. Pictures of it, yes, but never in the full reality. Samuel Francis says, uh, was a London merchant in the 1800s. He wrote for the church a wonderful expression of the steadfast love of God in the hymn, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. He likens in that hymn the love of Christ to an ocean. And let me read for you the hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. "'Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, "'leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. "'O the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. "'How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. "'How he watches over his loved ones, died to call them all his own. "'How for them he intercedeth, watcheth over them from the throne. "'O the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every, love the best.'" Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis the haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus! Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory. For it lifts me up to Thee. It, it's this constant thought of pressure, just unrelenting pressure, pushing and never relenting in that pressure upon us. The steadfast love of God—it never ceases. It continues. It never wavers. And yet, notice the reality of the psalmist's understanding of the steadfast love of God, and yet the reality of the human life. It's portrayed for us in the remaining verses of this second section, 5 through 7. And that is, in all, especially in our day, in a day in which happiness is clamored for to seemingly whatever it needs to be to get it, the Christian knows the reality of life, and that is that there are tears. And sometimes lots of them. That's what he that's, uh, thats what he describes for us. Death, there is no remembrance of you. Sheol, who will give you praise? How can I glorify you, God, if, if this affliction takes me all the way to death? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I'm I, I, I can say six and seven has, has happened in my life. You probably can as well. Just this full breakdown of oh, God, how long? And yet, what in that mo- in those moments, what do we hold to? Well, I suggest we hold to Psalm fifty-six, verse eight. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Another translation I think helps us even more. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. It's helpful to know that God knows every hair on your head and every tear that drops. He's well aware of this. Spurgeon will tell you that he he calls these tears liquid prayers. I think it's helpful to think that God knows. This is not outside of his understanding. He's well aware of the the plea and the pain of the afflicted. Finally, the third section here, verse eight through ten, the hope of the afflicted. The hope of the afflicted. Again, who's to say whether or not this affliction is from sin or not? But let's just take that road for a moment. Psalm 66, verse 18 through 19. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Verse 8 of Psalm 6. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. If you are in sin this morning, if you are not willing to repent of your sin, then let me tell you, according to the Scriptures, the Lord has not heard this. He, He doesn't attend to it. Truly God... He would not have listened. Does he hear it? Sure, but that's the difference from listening and hearing. And yet, in repentance, if that is what the affliction is from, repent, and and he delights to listen and hear and accept. That's what verse 9 tells us. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, mourning over their sin. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, And if we want to take the the road that this is uh, an affliction from physical suffering or from his enemies or from something that's not named, ultimately we can see that affliction or suffering of any type is a gift from God. Is a gift from God. If for no other reason, it provides an accurate assessment of the strength and health of our faith. First Peter chapter one verse six and through seven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've said it before, I'll say it again, in that suffering is one of the best tools I know to reveal the actual heart situation of each human being. I can look at you this morning, I have no clue, probably in its deepest reality of what's going on in your heart. You apply a bit of affliction, you apply a bit of suffering to that, and it's amazing to see what bubbles up. And though we might try to squish down that which is the reality of our heart's condition at the moment, it is amazing that that which just bubbles up from the surface is actually what's there. And therefore it's a gift from God. Personal suffering is just that. It is personal. And we can get touchy about personal matters. But the word begs the question for us this morning. Do we find that our suffering drives us closer to God or more absent from Him? That's a fruit of that. If it's a gift, what, what are you finding? If affliction is universal, what, what are you seeing? And then there's the application for us. Psalm 6 is a prayer. So how's your prayer life? You know, the psalmist in affliction responds with prayer. When you're in affliction, how do you respond? If you're like me, prayer may not be the first thing out. And we must repent of that and be that which we seek first, Him. May I be so bold as as to suggest that if our prayer lives are poor, we should expect discipline from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. Out of His desire to hear from us and His command for us to pray. Brothers and sisters, when under affliction, our only real course of action is prayer. I'm I'm all for medicine. If I've got a headache, I don't have any problem with some Advil. But it's just going to, to numb it. It doesn't really give me full relief from it. It's not a guarantee, even. You may have had a a migraine. I've had them before. Advil doesn't touch those things. Circumstances, they may change and you can shift your circumstances, but they're going to simply change again. People may come into your life that bring about difficulty and then they may go, but we aren't going to be promised any relational peace on this earth. Our only real hope is that our heavenly father never changes, that he is eternally the same. That he is the riches of all of eternity and the entire universe and more at his disposal to work on our behalf. And he delights to hear from his children. He accepts our plea. What else do we need to be those that are constant in prayer than to know that God of the universe accepts your plea? Well, let's close with this. I have two thoughts in closing, and they both center upon the work of Christ, the gospel. Now, I want you to just let your eyes skim Psalm 6 again. But now skim it with the idea of what Christ has done that allows us to pray such things. For instance, the wrath of God in the first section there. Christ has taken the full wrath of God for us. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, he completed, it is finished at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ suffered. You see that in the second section. The suffering of humanity is not unknown to Christ at all. Christ suffered. Scripture tells us he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You can read Psalm 22. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Our suffering ultimately has an intimate connection with the suffering of Christ. Notice that Last section here. I'm just skimming the top. Spend time this afternoon or this week to look deeper, but skimming the top. Notice verse 10. The enemies shall be put to shame. What did Christ do? Not only put all his enemies to shame, he victoriously won victory over sin and death, and will one day consummate that victory by returning for his people. And until that glorious day returns, it's not as if we are not as those that are walking victorious. If you haven't forgotten, let me, let me remind you that day in which he returns might be now. And it might be over lunch. And it might be this afternoon. And it might be tomorrow. And it might be a few weeks or years. I don't know. I can tell you that we're closer to now than we were the last time I said now. A few minutes ago. That we're closer to that return and our hope should be growing exponentially. Because he is coming. And until he comes and brings about the promise of eternal life, the complete end to all affliction, we can know, according to Philippians 3.10, that we may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So if we die before he returns, or if he returns while we are still alive, we will be like him. are you convinced of the truth that God, through the work of Christ, receives your prayer? I don't know what else to ask you. But that's entirely true only for the believer. So if you, if you don't know God this morning, then the glorious work of Christ to take away the ultimate affliction the affliction of sin, the ultimate punishment, the eternal wrath of God, that's not been credited to you and you can't claim it as your own. And yet at the same moment, you can move by the free offering of saving grace through Jesus Christ from being hated by him to under his complete and full eternal love. And you can't do anything about that. It's a gift of God. It is a gift of God. It's offered to you in Jesus Christ. It, it's laid out for you. That if you will if you will recognize your sin, if you will look today to see that Christ died on the cross for you, thereby taking your sin and bearing the wrath of God for you, if you will but place your trust in Him to do the work that you cannot do, which is be made right with holy God, then scripture tells you very clearly, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's as simple as that. Will you be humble enough to stop all the hard work you are doing to make yourself right with God and realize that only Jesus Christ was perfect and only he can make you right with God? You know, I I heard it this morning. Uh, another testimony of, of one's conversion. And what struck me yet again was the same thing that strikes me every time about my own personal testimony of his saving grace is the weight of one's sin that God uses to bring one to the reality of the holiness of God and the work of Jesus Christ. So is your sin weighing on you this morning? Is it... Is it weighing on you? And let me just let me short-circuit your life and tell you that you can't have enough fun to get away from the weight of that sin. There's just not enough roller coasters in the world to get you around that. There's not enough movies. There's not enough addictions. There's not enough stuff in the world to get your mind off the weight of the reality of your sin. You cannot distract yourself from it and you cannot make it go away. If your sin is weighing in a crushing way upon your heart this morning, then let me tell you, that is, that is God's grace to say, come to me through Jesus Christ. Only Christ can take the load of sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Final word. What is your affliction this morning? I don't know what it is, but I have no doubt that you do. Will you fly to God and his mercy? Will you find such incredible comfort for your soul in God and God alone? Because the afflicted find deliverance in God. And i offer that to you this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that there, there, there is no affliction that Christ does not know. There's no sorrow that is being born this morning that he is not well aware of. There's no grief. There's no suffering. There's no persecution that Christ is not intimately acquainted with and and knows how to communicate to the Father for us as our intercessor in order that we might find deliverance. It may not be manifested in a change of circumstances. You were sovereign over these things. It might be. It might just be, Father, that you dump so much grace upon us that we find ourselves overwhelmed by your steadfast love to the point that, what is a bit of affliction? And that I don't have to bear the eternal affliction of sin, the wrath of God over my soul, but I've been redeemed. I've been saved. And I have the hope that all of this will one day end. glory awaits Father is that not even by your kindness toward us glory now that we could have such a thought and be reminded of such truth Father we thank you for your word it speaks clearly to us I would ask that if there was something I said or meditated upon that was not pleasing in your sight erase that from the record block that from the minds of those that are here and may the word be that which encourages and nourishes according to your desire and your glory Father I pray that as we sing now this song we might find a renewed sense of encouragement and grace from such truth and maybe even this coming month or coming year when we read through this again you would remind us of the the truth that is there We're grateful, Father, that you provided for us prayer and song that gets to the heart of reality. And that is that there is suffering and that there is affliction. But that you know. And that you are the one who is working and determining the course of all of these things. Father, we submit to you our time that we've had this morning. Uh, We submit to you our, our, our meal, our time together in fellowship and ask that you would be glorified in the holy and precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.